This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Hello. Oh my. My name is Hillary Berwick. Many of you have seen me at this point. Um, I am uh, a co-chair of the program committee, uh, and I would like to speak very briefly before Miranda gets up as the other co-chair and speaks very briefly, and then we let the brilliance that is on our stage speak for themselves. Um, those of you who know me won't be surprised that I'm very comfortable speaking gratitude, and I find speaking gratitude to be very important. And so one of the main things that I'm actually here to say is thank you, especially on behalf of the program committee. Um, but, but I think um, on behalf of all of us, this couldn't happen if you weren't here, like literally. Uh, and this, as I said yesterday, is um, an intellectual home for me, and it means a lot to be able to come here and be here with you all. Um, we're also particularly grateful um, because we get to put this particular panel together. So the theme of this panel is the role of cultural studies on policing in the current crisis. Um, and I, one of my favorite questions is, is actually a mimicking of my Russian Jewish grandmother. So no, so what? So why are we here? So what are we doing? Um, and I, I really feel like one of the things that we get to do with this question is ask precisely like, so what? So what are we doing? What are we doing? Like, why are we here? Um, and to be able to ask that question after this conference with its incredible participation and its incredible depth and the breadth of the conversations that we've gotten to have from policing in terms of uh, interpersonal interactions to policing structurally to policing individually. Um, I, it's, it's, a, it's a gift. So thank you for being here in Philly-ish, for being here in the room right now. Um, uh, we just appreciate it very much. And I'm gonna let Miranda introduce our speakers. Thank you. Um, all right, I can't not offer some thanks myself as well. Um, first of all, to McCann and Chiji and the rest of the site committee, and also staff here, um, Ronald DeMint, who I think is probably not actually in the room or even attended any of this, but did some of the like hands-on work of like which rooms and getting the right food in the right places and things like that. Um, so many thanks for that work here locally. We've been hosted well and, and really appreciate it. Um, I also have huge thanks to Hillary, my co-conspirator throughout this process. It's just been tremendous to have somebody to consult with, work with, talk with throughout, um, and she's been great. Uh, Sean Andrews deserves a special crown, I think, for having had the brilliant idea of this theme just once it was put out in the world. It was like, oh, of course that's what we have to do. Um, and uh, the, But then the members of the site of the program committee, Helen Capstein, Nick Mitchell, Sora Han, really did, I think, some beautiful, thoughtful work to elaborate, you know, that nugget of an idea into the prompt that brought all of you here, um, successfully prompted you to come and give wonderful presentations. Uh, I also want to particularly thank Andrew Culp, who um, was both hardworking and cheerful throughout as he you know, served as the interface between the program, the kind of core program committee, specifically me and Hillary, and um, the working groups, which um, is quite a task. Uh, also thanks to Jafar for organizing the seminars, Paul for organizing the Author Meets Critics panels, and I think another round of applause for Michelle is um, more than due. It's uh, 
my honor to introduce our closing plenary speakers. Um, they've been asked, I should say, to address the theme directly but briefly so that we should plenty of time for us all to have a discussion. Um, che Gossett, unfortunately, could not be here this evening due to illness, so, um, but I think we'll have plenty of provocation from these three. So first speaker will be Marisol Lebron. Uh, Marisol is the 2015 to 2017 postdoctoral associate in Latino studies um, in the Global South at Duke University. She's also an assistant professor in the Department of American Studies at Dickinson College. Lebron received her PhD uh, in American Studies from NYU and BA in Comparative American Studies from Oberlin College. Um, LeBron is currently at work on her first book called Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico, which examines the growth of punitive policing measures in contemporary Puerto Rico. Marisol also has an essay in the important new collection, Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter, a um, new volume just out uh, that was edited by Jordan Camp and Christina Heatherton. Uh, LeBron is also published in Souls, in NACLA Report on the Americas, Women in Performance, and many other venues. Our second speaker, David Palumbo Liu, is the Louise Hewlett Nixon Professor and Professor of Comparative Literature at Stanford University. He's the author and or editor of six books, most recently the monograph, The Deliverance of Others, Reading Literature in a Global Age, which addresses the role of contemporary humanistic literature with regard to the instruments and discourses of globalization, seeking to discover modes of affiliation and transnational ethical thinking. David has also published numerous articles contributing to the fields of East Asian, Asian and Asian American studies and critical theory in journals such as Poetics Today, Diacritics Differences, a journal of feminist cultural studies, New Literary History, New Centennial Review, Cultural Critique, Public Culture, Boundary Two, and others. In addition, he is the founding editor of the e-journal Occasion, Interdisciplinary Studies in the Humanities, uh, and he's also a contributing editor for the Los Angeles Book of, um, Review of Books. David blogs for Truthouts, Public Intellectual Project, as well as the Huffington Post, Salon, Al Jazeera, Open Democracy, The Nation, Alternet, and other venues. He serves on the Haystack Steering Committee and the Academic Steering and Advocacy Committee for the Open Library of the Humanities and founded and directs the Teaching Human Rights Collaboratory. Our final speaker, Gillian Harkins, is Associate Professor of English at the University of Washington. She's the author of the monograph, Everybody's Family Romance, Reading Incest in Neoliberal America, which argues that the 1990s boom in print materials addressing father-daughter incest contributed to broader transformations of family life associated with neoliberal governance in the US. Her new book in progress is entitled Screening Pedophilia, Virtuality, and Other Crimes Against Nature. She has published numerous articles, including with Erica Myers, Beyond Crisis, College and Prison Through the Abolition Undercommons, which is in the CSA's own online journal, Lateral. Um, that publication, among others, emerge, emerges from her work with uh, three college and prison programs in the Puget Sound area and her research and teaching on the intersections of education, justice, and prison abolition. And with that, I will turn it over to our speakers.
So I also want to begin with some thank yous and thank yous to um, Hillary and to Miranda for um, inviting me uh, to participate in this in this um, uh, panel and then to also all the other organizers um, for putting together a really outstanding conference. Um, I've, I've had a jam-packed couple of days, but really, really amazing and, and rewarding and um, incredible to hear in particular some of the exciting work being done in critical university studies, which I think is one of the uh, themes that perhaps we'll, we'll discuss a little bit today, uh, although I won't be discussing that. But <laughs> um, So one of the questions that the panelists were asked to consider is what it might mean uh, to look to policing the crisis for analytical and methodological inspiration in the present moment. During my time today, I want to briefly discuss what I see as some of the central uh, interventions of policing the crisis and discuss how I think it can help us think through what's being called uh, the Puerto Rican debt crisis. Britain almost 40 years ago, when conservative political ideologies were being consolidated in Britain, policing the crisis provides us with a rigorous uh, template for examining the work that narratives of crisis perform. At the risk of uh, restating the obvious to uh, a room full of people for whom policing the crisis is probably very near and dear to their hearts, uh, the central claim that Stuart and his Birmingham uh, colleagues make is that the panic over mugging that gripped England during the early 1970s actually had very little to do with crime. Instead, mugging indexed a range of fears about societal disintegration, the decline of the so-called British way of life, in the figure of the mugger coalesced a range of anxieties about race, immigration, youth, cities, and political economy. Mugging became a key articulator of crisis, in their words, and allowed for the rearticulation and reification of oppressive power relations and structures of inequality during a moment when Britain was facing significant social transformation. In many ways, the enduring legacy of policing the crisis has been to urge scholars to delve into and eventually beyond crisis narratives to illuminate what crisis occludes as it shapes governance and consolidates power relations during moments of intense flux. So how can policing the crisis help us to critically think about the current situation that's unfolding currently in Puerto Rico? If we take up the mode of cultural studies inquiry modeled by policing the crisis, how can we understand the current work that the, current, uh, that the narrative of crisis uh, and the debt around crisis performs. Narratives and venues like the Wall Street Journal uh, and the New York Times focus on how cronyism, corruption, and fiscal irresponsibility on the part of Puerto Rico's political elites uh, have led to a situation where the Puerto Rican government is now attempting to um, supposedly shirk its responsibility to bondholders. Those same bondholders, under the guise of dark money of a dark money group called the Center for Individual Freedom, have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars for television advertisements that urge people to call their congressional representatives and voice their opposition to a bailout for Puerto Rico. And those of you who might live in the D.C. area have probably seen these um, on on the television. If you if you subscribe to Hulu like I do, then you probably haven't. But uh, they're playing um, pretty frequently in the television markets in the D.C. metropolitan area. So of course, a bailout was never on the table for Puerto Rico. 
Instead, Washington's solution to the Puerto Rican debt crisis is more austerity and more direct colonial control. Placing bondholders before the people of Puerto Rico, Washington is undertaking a bipartisan effort to pass the uh, Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, also known as the PROMESA Act. And uh, PROMESA in Spanish means promise, so it's the Promise Act. If passed, the PROMESA Act or PROMESA bill will create a federal control board uh, to oversee the island's finances. The federal control board uh, essentially will consist of about seven uh, members who are appointed by the, pre the president with uh, congressional approval, only one of whom must actually be a resident of Puerto Rico. With virtually no local input, the control board would have the power to override the Commonwealth government and implement austerity measures in an effort to reduce the debt. Further, the PROMESA bill includes provisions that directly and negatively impact the island's already vulnerable working classes. The bill allows for newly hired uh, minimum wage workers under the age of 25 to be paid less than the federal minimum wage, as little as 4.25 an hour for a period of four years. The bill also exempts Puerto Rico from newly established overtime pay rules that were recently extended to mainland workers. Puerto Ricans are fighting hard to resist these austerity measures, but in many ways the game is rigged against them, and the cards are and have historically been stacked against them as well. In discussions about the debt crisis, journalists and analysts will almost always mention a catastrophic set of social economic indicators. For instance, that nearly half of the island is living in poverty, that food insecurity is growing, that working class Puerto Ricans are losing their pensions, that basic infrastructure is crumbling, that public education is being gutted, that, healthcare, that the healthcare system is failing. Perhaps the indicator of crisis that is most often repeated in the press is that Puerto Rico has been experiencing steady population decline for the past couple of years. Puerto Ricans are migrating to the uh, mainland United States in numbers not seen, since of, uh, not seen since the Great Migration of the 1950s and 60s uh, under uh, the US-led development scheme known as Operation Bootstrap. And as of last year, more Puerto Ricans live on the mainland than on the island. This information is mentioned by journalists, politicians, and pundits in an effort to generate sympathy for Puerto Ricans suffering but it also often functions to shift blame onto Puerto Ricans for the crisis and position them as a problem population for the United States. Colonialism is seldom named as the direct cause of Puerto Rico's misery. Rather, the mismanagement of funds by, by the local government that took on more debt than it could handle is to blame. And an old colonial discourse that constructs Puerto Ricans as ignorant, irresponsible, and unable to govern themselves is being re resurrected in the media in order to justify the extraordinary power and reach of the proposed federal control board. Further, for many Puerto Ricans, um, once again, or excuse me, further for many, Puerto Ricans once again represent a burdensome and dangerous subject population for the United States. In crisis narratives, Puerto Ricans emerge as vectors of illness, threatening to contaminate the mainland with Zika, and low-income Puerto Ricans uh, who migrate are little more than potential welfare recipients who will tax resources of their receiving communities. And you, hear, um, you see this emerge a lot in the coverage of the growing 
Puerto Rican population in Orlando and um, the fact that Puerto Ricans have um, basically been uh, marginally housed in Orlando and have been kind of us uh, living in the motels that circle Disneyland, right? So the, the so-called Mickey Ricans. Um, people are asking Congress uh, to act not just because the debt crisis is causing a humanitarian crisis in Puerto Rico or because ultimately the United States holds the overwhelming majority of the blame for the situation on the island, but because Puerto Ricans are threatening to drop their problems on the doorsteps of uh, quote unquote real Americans. In her polemical text, Anti-Crisis, anthropologist Janet Reutemann suggests that the notion of crisis and how we discuss it is in many ways oxymoronic. On the one hand, a narrative of crisis implies a rupture, and on the other hand, it's often understood as an enduring set of affairs. Taking the subprime uh, housing crisis as an object of analysis, Reutemann states, quote, we see how the accession to crisis engenders certain narrations and note how the term enables and forecloses various kinds of questions, end quote. Reutemann goes on to say that, quote, in assuming crisis as a point of departure, we remain closed off in the politics of crisis, end quote. Narratives of crisis for Reutemann limit the political imagination and the possibilities for meaningful uh, social transformation. Reutemann's argument is perhaps more indebted to Stuart Hall and the Birmingham School than she presents it, however. Like policing the crisis, one of the central questions that anti-crisis asks us to consider is, what kind of narration does crisis demand and what kind of questions does it foreclose? And how does crisis shape the possibilities for social and political transformation? Without a doubt, dominant narratives about the debt crisis in Puerto Rico knowingly and unknowingly work to obscure the continued reality of US colonial rule on the island. The current crisis is not about debt. It is a colonial crisis and one that has been unfolding for decades, not for years. As I mentioned, the debt crisis narrative places blame at the, blame at the feet of inept local politicians and bureaucrats who mismanage funds, engage in corruption, fleece the good, hardworking people of Puerto Rico who place their faith in government bonds for their pensions. And all of this is certainly true. But those are symptomatic of issues that on the surface are about debt and on a deeper level are about colonial exploitation. Borrowing from policing the crisis, debt is only the articulator of crisis in this instance. Focusing on debt allows for larger questions of colonial rule to be cast aside. Positioning the island's $72 billion debt as, as um, responsible for nearly all of the problems facing Puerto Rico today not only fails to address how the debt is a result of long-standing practices of colonial and capitalist exploitation, but also works to strengthen colonial rule at a moment when its grip is weakened. Rather than dismantling the colonial strict, uh, strictures, they caused debt to become one of the only ways to finance the economy following the collapse of the US-led uh, uh, Operation Bootstrap. The debt crisis has reified the notion that direct colonial oversight is the only solution to Puerto Rico's seeming inability to uh, govern itself properly. Policing the crisis encourages, to think, encourages us to think critically about what is included in particular narratives of crisis and what falls out and to what purpose. Policing the crisis also asks us to think deeply about the histories and power relations that have shaped contemporary moments of crisis. 
Perhaps most importantly, policing the crisis stresses the importance of taking seriously the role of culture in shaping governance and political economy, rejecting the idea that crisis is either uh, generated, interpreted, or resolved solely at the level of policy. I'll conclude with just one more point. Policing the Crisis is a book about many things, race, culture, nation, media, governance, and so much more. But it's a book that ultimately um, has changed the way we forever think about the function and nature of policing. With painstaking detail, Policing the Crisis debunked the idea that the sole purpose of policing was about excuse me, serving and protecting the people. Instead, we see how policing functions to facilitate governance, maintain power relations, and produce criminality. This is something that's profoundly influenced my own work about uh, punitive policing, racial inequality, and social protests in contemporary Puerto Rico. It's also something that we're seeing now as the state is mobilizing both at the local and federal uh, uh, levels in relationship to the debt crisis. Puerto Rican activist and journalist Carmelo Ruiz has reported that in April, the FBI began a targeted campaign of harassment and intimidation against veterans of Puerto Rico's pro-independence movement. This occurred as protests uh, against the proposed federal control board were ramping up on the island. The FBI obtained an order signed by a federal judge which allowed them to obtain DNA samples from 16 individuals related to an ongoing investigation of the Machateros, which was an uh, armed revolutionary group active in the island and on the mainland during the 1970s and 1980s. So if any of you remember that large bank robbery of the um, Wells Fargo armored truck in Hartford, Connecticut in 1980, that was something that the Machateros did. So the order that was issued by this federal judge does not name the individuals to be sampled or give any specific information about the charges being investigated by the FBI. Since mid-April, three independence activists have been taken into custody by the FBI uh, and compelled to provide DNA samples without being told why they are under investigation. And uh, most of these individuals are people that have already served sentences related to either um, are the, the robbery or, or um, attacks on U.S. installations. The harassment of aging pro-independence activists by federal law enforcement is meant to intimidate Puerto Ricans into quietly accepting the changes in governance that are in the pipeline. Policing the crisis provides us with a template to analyze how repressive forms of policing such as these are not solely about investigating crimes committed by the Machateros more than 30 years ago or about squashing growing popular um, protests against austerity. Rather, these forms of policing are about the consolidation of power and the facilitation of governance. Um, so I'll end there, and I look forward to um, geeking out some more about how awesome policing the crisis is and how relevant and important it is to us still. Um, so thank you so much. Okay, so I also want to thank the organizers. This has been an amazing event, and I've enjoyed uh, the panels I've been able to participate in and listen to. Uh, so for my comments, I want to focus on two important aspects of policing today that contribute to what we're calling a crisis. Um, the first is the interpolation of ordinary citizens as vigilantes that police public space and all that might suggest. And the second one, which I'll spend a little bit less time on, is the militarization of police to act outside their idealized role as citizens in uniform. That term citizens in uniform uh, crops up in police studies literature all the time. 
And I really encourage you to, as, as, as horrific as it is sometimes, to look at uh, police websites, their, their, um, uh, their blogs, and see the reaction to things like the shooting of Oscar Grant. It's, it's startling. Um, okay. So in uh, a few years ago, the ACLU um, pub published a really important uh, brochure. Uh, the title is Take Back the Streets, colon, Repression and Criminalization of Protest Around the World. Take Back the Streets, Repression and Criminalization of Protest Around the World. And the first paragraph, or sort of the intro of the pamphlet says, in June 2010, hundreds of thousands of, Can uh, of Canadians took to the streets of Toronto to peacefully protest the G12 summit which was taking place behind a fortified fence walled off, uh, that walled off much of the city's downtown core. On Saturday evening during the summit weekend, a senior Toronto police commissioner sent out an order, quote, take back the streets. I'll let you process that for a second. <laughs> Within a span of 36 hours, over a thousand people Peaceful protesters, journalists, human rights monitors, and downtown residents were arrested and placed in detention. So the very idea of the streets and what a public street might be and what measures are legitimate in order to take back the streets and for who is an important question. And we certainly saw all of that at Ferguson. Certain basic human rights, such as the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, due process, were all trampled upon, and it was exacerbated by the massive militarization of police. Uh, you all know, I saw several papers uh, at this conference talking about the militarization of police, and I hope it was brought up that a lot of the armament that people had, police had, was actually a war surplus from the Afghan war. And not only were these weapons put in the hands of police, but there was an expiration date on it. In other words, the federal government gave it to you, but you had to use it, or else it would be taken back. So there was an incentive to use these materials. And furthermore, there was no civilian oversight. So what, would begin, what I want to really outline here is the merging and the blurring of boundaries between police, military, public, private, etc. cetera. Uh, but I want to begin uh, the, the substance of the talk by recalling an incident that happened in McKinney, Texas. And here, racism and police brutality were in graphic display. You'll probably remember the, the um, iconic photo of a fully armed white male officer throwing a 15-year-old black girl clad only in a bikini on the ground and holding her down with his knees. And white residents uh, had prompted this. They were outraged that black teenagers were fully within their rights using a community recreational center. Tatiana Rose, who hosted a community party with her siblings, says that the weekend confrontation was sparked by angry white neighbors. She says the cookout at Craig Ranch housing community was a public event, and she and her sisters were holding uh, this party for their friends, and a group of white neighbors began cursing the party attendees, telling them to, quote, return to their Section 8 housing, and hurling racial slurs at the children. 
This remarkable quote points exactly to the fact that we are still living in a world of de facto segregation, and the fact of segregation is enforced not just by the police, but also members of the public. In these people's minds, the only place for blacks is in neatly segregated public housing, not in actual public space. This deadly combination of self-deputized enforcers of the public good, along with renegade police and security personnel holding the ground against young blacks who are not where they are supposed to be, is found as well in one of the worst race riots in American history, which started on a beach in Chicago in 1919 and resulted in 38 people dead, 500 injured, and 6,000 National Guard troops called out in what became known as Chicago's Red Summer. The Chicago uh, Tribune report of 1919 tells it this way, quote, they were separated by a line unseen and a law unwritten. The 29th Street Beach was for white, the 25th Street Beach was for blacks. An invisible boundary stretched from the sand into Lake Michigan, parting the races like Moses' staff parted the Red Sea. On this stifling hot Sunday, Eugene Williams, a black teenager, drifted south of that line while swimming with friends. Whites picked up rocks and let fly. Some accounts say Williams was hit on the head and went under. Others say he became tired and was too afraid to come ashore. Either way, he drowned, touching off the deadliest episode of racial violence in Chicago history. Besides these two cases, I want to mention one other, the case of Howard's Beach in 1986. And in a, 19, in a 2011 retrospective, New York Times reported it this way. The events at Howard Beach began when Mr. Griffin, Griffith, sorry, a construction worker and three black companions traveled from Brooklyn to Queens to pick up his paycheck. Their car broke down late on December 19th on a desolate stretch of Cross Bay Boulevard, and three of the four began walking into Howard Beach. As they were crossing the street, they were bumped by a car in which several white teenagers were riding. Racial slurs were exchanged. The teenagers, joined by other whites, confronted the, white, uh, the black men outside a pizza parlor and chased them. Timothy Grimes, who was 18, escaped unharmed. Mr. Griffith was killed by a car on the Belt Parkway. Cedric Santafort, who was 36, was beaten with a bat and other weapons. Jean Griffith Santafort, the mother of Michael Griffith, who was chased to his death on Belt Parkway, has forgiven her son's killers. But the mother-in-law of one of his attackers suggests that the case was blown out of proportion. Others argue that the assault was more about turf than race, and that the three men who ventured into the overwhelmingly white neighborhood that night were probably up to no good. That's the end of the Times report. Most chillingly and most relevant as we process what occurred in McKinney are the fates of those who led the attack. Quote, the three teenagers convicted of manslaughter were released from prison and are family men in their 40s. The leader of the attack, who became the key prosecution witness and dreamed of following his father's footsteps in law enforcement, never did become a police officer. I'll let that sink in for a while, too. And despite myself, I'm going to mention Donald Trump. And if you look at any of his political rallies, you can see already the beginning of this uh, self-deputized enforcement of public space, although he says it's private. Um, 
And it always startles me when you read these reports saying, you know, fascism on the rise in America, Donald Trump. Well, you know, it's been on the rise for some time, and it's not only Donald Trump, but it's a convenient scapegoat. Uh, okay, what about resistance? Here are a couple of possibilities. One is, and this is from Patrice Colores of Black Lives Matters, is basically communities should just police themselves. And this is something that immigrant communities have known since the 19th century. You know, it's, it's better to not go to the police and take care of your own communities. Uh, the other thing, and this has been essential in the last um, several years, is uh, what's called citizen journalists. In other words, uh, people using cell phone cameras. But this is something that we should be aware of in terms of the law. The Supreme Court has not ruled on this, but lower federal courts have maintained that First Amendment rights protect individuals and they should be able to record and photograph law enforcement in public places as long as they are not interfering with police doing their duty. This is a very squishy area of the law. In 2012, the US Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal on a controversial Illinois law prohibiting people from recording police officers on the job. And this had to do with the 2011 case in which a Cook County jury acquitted a woman who had been charged with recording Chicago police internal affairs investigators she believed were trying to dissuade her from filing a sexual harassment complaint against a police officer. By passing on this issue, the justices left in place a federal appeals court ruling that found that the state's anti-eavesdropping law violates free speech rights when used against people who audio tape police officers. In other words, what I'm trying to draw your attention to is this parlaying of one kind of right against another uh, by, the, by the police. You, know, you shouldn't be able to eavesdrop, and therefore, people shouldn't be able to record their conversations. In 2015, the court still had not uniformly recognized that a, a right to record police actually exists, though the US Department of Justice has expressed as support for the right to record, but only four federal appeals courts have ruled that such a right exists. Others have not either not ruled at all or narrowly ruled that no right has been clearly established. But just recently, in February of this year, a very important case uh, cropped up um, called Fields versus Philadelphia. And in that case, the court decided, quote, we have not found and the experienced counsel have not cited any case in the Supreme Court or this circuit finding citizens have a First Amendment right to record police conduct without any stated purpose of being critical of the government. In other words, what they're saying is you can't just gratuitously record the police, but if you have, um, there's a criticism, you're doing it because you want to um, lodge a complaint, then you can. Uh, it continues, absent any authority from the Supreme Court or our Court of Appeals, we decline to create a new First Amendment right for citizens to photograph officers when they have no expressive purpose, such as challenging police actions. The citizens are not without remedy because once the police officer takes your phone, alters your technology, arrests you, or applies excessive force, we proceed to trial on the Fourth Amendment claims. In other words, the um, amendment dealing with unlawful, unlawful seizure. So it comes off this suit that was uh, filed by um, uh, Amanda Gerasi and Richard Fields. In uh, 2013, Fields, who was an undergraduate at Temple University, was recording about 20 police officers outside a house party on campus. 
Fields refused to leave when asked by officers, who subsequently detained and handcuffed him. His reason for filming was that, quote, he thought it would make a great picture. So the courts felt that that was a trivial reason to photograph the police, but the courts left open the possibility that you can do it if you feel that the police are acting illegally, which is, is very, very important. Um, I encourage you, if you're interested in doing these kinds of things, to get a mobile app called Mobile Justice that's um, produced by the ACLU. So just to finish, in all these instances, I want us to think about cultural studies as something that can and should be honestly focused not only on the most likely suspects, but on the less likely ones, deputized agents of biopolitical regime that interfaces with sanctioned, but also often equally illegal policing. I want us to think of using the methodologies of cultural studies to balance empirical evidence from diverse sources precisely to adjudicate the slippage of rights discourse, which I've been trying to underscore in my talk today. It's appropriation by multiple state and non-state actors in claiming or denying rights to public space is something that we should all be attentive to. Thank you. I also want to thank the organizers and, of course, everyone who's been at the conference. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Um, I have been experimenting lately as I finish a project with trying not to read, but to see if I can surprise myself into thinking something new by talking to people a little more openly. I am hoping that's in the spirit of the collective writing of policing, um, but they probably came up with far better results than this will. So um, what I decided to do today is uh, reflect, as I was asked for about 10 minutes, on the analytic and methodological implications of the volume. And instead of using my time to create one uh, consolidated argument, I wanted to open up a few threads that I experience in my own uh, political and intellectual work that I feel goes under the heading of cultural studies. So um, I took this as an invitation to reflect on um, why crisis is and is not a useful rubric and how we can actually see that rubric playing very different roles um, simultaneously, especially when you do work in one historical moment and where in one location crisis seems to be a public discourse that raises a set of political stakes that are useful and that actually can be treated diagnostically as it is in policing the crisis and in other places where crisis is actually um, uh, functioning more at the level of an ideological distraction and or is actually functioning to occlude a conjuncture that would otherwise become more visible. So for my own work, um, where I see this is uh, in the two different places that I, that I already were mentioned that I work in. My own work crosses various institutional spaces and epistemes um, as much of our work does. And for me, it clusters in two interfaces, um, college and prison programs and in uh, the concept of child sexual abuse. And I see those as deeply interrelated, one of which has yielded a public discourse of crisis, one of which has not. And so that's for me, um, especially working on sexual violence across institutional spaces, becomes extremely interesting about what then appears under the category child sexual abuse and what appears under the category college and prison, when certainly PREA or the Prison Rape Elimination Act uh, rape on campus and then the felony history box for sexual offenders are intersecting logics that um, tether those two institutions, including in their labor practices. So um, I said I wasn't going to read, but these are my preliminary notes. Um, both have pr uh, pronounced crises, but uh, they do so in very, very different ways. So the college and prison work has included participation in programs as well as activism and a variety of uh, demands to do institutional gatekeeping and to volunteer. And I have a lot to say about that, but in that work, if anyone's read the work that I've done with Erica Miners, we tried to focus on how um, 
the differentiation between crisis in terms of higher education and crisis in terms of uh, the current state of mass incarceration, we're actually creating solutions at the level of college and prison. And I think we see that increasingly with the return of Pell and various approaches of thinking of college and prison as a re redemptive, yes, as a redemptive um, opportunity, both for people who are currently incarcerated, which is shifts the logic of education and restricts some of its more radical potentiality and also um, legitimates a very restricted notion of higher education on college campuses. So one of the arguments we made looking at the abolition under commons framework was trying to think about moving beyond negotiation to think about the political agency of people who are currently incarcerated, not just by giving them the name of student and asking them to fulfill the role of student activist, but trying to rethink the way student activism has been understood as institutionally delimited now that we have campuses that work increasingly outside of their own uh, spatial logics in the campus. The child sexual abuse work has also included a range of different kinds of practices. They did early work with a group called Generation 5, and we developed a transformative justice document that tried to focus on how to unpack the social logic of crisis that focused mostly on stranger danger for children, and that had led to the rise of three strikes, certainly in California and Washington State, and the effort to use uh, violent sex predators against children as the case example of the most dangerous kind of predation that fell outside of other kinds of criminalized logics that seemed to organize potential social justice movements. So in other words, the use of sex offenders against children as a kind of monstrous figure or folk devil, thinking through the logic of crisis, that would justify um, an outlier group who could not be redeemed in other kinds of modes of thinking about racial, social, and economic justice. And so for many ways, um, the whiteness of the pedophile in particular became of great interest to me. So I did um, two different things in response. Where am I, what am I doing to this? Um, this would probably just go better if I stop looking at the script. I'm gonna to try to do that, as I promised. It's very hard to do. Um, I wrote a first book focusing on father-daughter incest. And in that book, one of the things that interested me moving beyond the logic of policing and crisis was trying to think about not um, a moral panic, which is frequently the category used, translated into a sex panic, but instead to think about the ways in which um, the orchestration of a subset of child sexual abuse or father-daughter incest revealed something far different from a kind of massification of media representation, but instead a slipping downward into a shift in how culture actually operated. So I looked at the ways in which father-daughter incest actually produced two different effects. One, a logic of paradox, in which there would be vanishing points of the way government could actually intrude in family life and justify sexual interest in children. And the other was analogy, which made a series of connections that expanded government interest in childhood and family by making it like rape or like abuse. And so that book was really in some ways residual looking backward. And the work I want to talk about today is the new work on uh, virtual pedophilia. And in some ways that for me has been the most challenging work in terms of thinking about policing the crisis. It lends itself very, very well to the logic of moral and sexual panic. And it's been really hard for me to think about why I find that um, approach so limited. So there are obvious reasons, which is um, very few people pursue it like policing the crisis did. And so there's often a thinness to the kind of historical account or institutional account of what's happening. This gets much more extreme when it's sexuality because there tends to be a somewhat libertarian approach to sexuality as a separate sector of erotic potentiality that is being restricted or regulated by domains of governance that have no proper interest it's something that comes out of a certain sex radicalism that I certainly agree with, but when it dovetails with the resistance to the idea of sexual harm, it has tended to make panic into a 
and account of ideology as screen or mask for more properly economic and political distributed impasses. So in some ways, I depart from the Policing the Crisis book by trying to look at how the whiteness of the pedophile in particular um, does not participate in a panic logic, but instead is working through um, what Foucault calls vile sovereignty and the abnormal, or a kind of way of organizing the relationship between psychiatry and law that produces, in this case, a forensic black box where no one is in charge and no one can ever amass data or information that would properly profile this figure. So instead, we get SORNA and a range of registration and notification acts that have increased the idea that information can serve as some kind of protection against an otherwise normal or abnormally normal predator who is not monstrous, but in fact, always potentially present in everyone's eroticism. And therefore, there needs to be a certain kind of actuarial logic, a certain kind of information gathered to predict, because empirical data will never accurately say where the danger is coming from. So across the 90s and the 2000s, we saw the increase in definite civil detention. We saw a set of cases and a set of laws that made it possible to use the impossibility of diagnosis and the lack of criminal offense as logics to justify increased penality and an increased logic of surveillance. So if you're not familiar with some of this work, I'd be happy to talk more about it. Um, one of the things that I will say somewhat in closing is that um, one of the things that I find particularly troubling and interesting about this work is um, my surprise that while, uh, while the whiteness of the pedophile in particular has done a certain amount of work, um, the cultural materials I look at to try to understand this seem far more to be about producing new logics of respectability that are in fact um, quite predicated on a set of visual arguments and visual registrations of histories of African-American surveillance or resistance. So the idea that working class cultures or working class communities actually have the proper way of understanding resistance to government regulation that will fail to actually protect from predation, and that that should partake in anti-racist logics even in the service of policing white predators who threaten white children. So it's a very new and strange expansion of agency, the kind of citizen and vigilante agencies that we were just talking about, but that actually have no particular power to act, that become in fact a kind of cultural common sense or a way of doing forensics as common sense that is supposed to be distributed across populations as a mode of empowerment in the, in the, in the face of policing that is somehow also anti-police. So it's a little hard to unpack all of that, um, just sitting here chatting. But one of the things that I was hoping you all could help me with as we talk through this is how to frame some of the ways this operates in, so that it will speak more closely to other people's interest in policing. So I found frequently that sex panic will have a certain purchase in first studies or studies of sexuality, and there's more interest and debate about that. But it's very difficult to place this argument in the discussions of policing centrally. And um, for people who don't know the increase in people registered as sex offenders is second only to those um, convicted of drug offenses in the last 10 year period. It's a huge engine of the carceral apparatus and for some people one of the central ways the carceral state has built itself. So one of the things that interests me is the policing of cultural studies arguments about the prison industrial complex and how hard it is to get the arguments about sexuality uh, into this discussion centrally and as part of the conjuncture as opposed to as peripheral or additional subject matter. Yes. yes, it's. I think this is the one from yesterday that's very um, faint. Um, so, you know, I think um, uh, your your kind of closing provocation is something that actually came up during um, the roundtable that I participated in yesterday. Is this question of how do 
that we complicate some of the kind of dominant narratives uh, about the carceral state and carceral growth in the United States, um, thinking differently about questions of periodization and also thinking differently, or geography as well, but also thinking differently about questions of population that fall into these carceral um, nets. And um, one of the things that, that we discussed that is quite difficult, I think, uh, about doing that is that often um, there is a displacement, I think, uh, it becomes a zero-sum game sometimes in some of the, the carceral work, where it becomes a, then a displacement of the racial analytic, right? Um, where it becomes, um, well, what do we do with the non-non-nons who are, as you rightly know, contributing exponentially to carceral growth and the expansion of um, mechanisms of surveillance um, and, and carceral control in this country. Um, and, and if that's happening, then it can't be that, that race is kind of also a deciding like factor. Yes, yes. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I wasn't going to name names, oh, but if you want to, that's fine <laughs> too. So, but but I think it's a it's a it's a challenge that I think um, is is really taking shape. I think in in if we want to call it a field, right? If the field of carceral studies or critical prison studies, whatever we kind of, we kind of want to uh, uh, term it, I think it's, it, it, it's a challenge, right? And I think that um, it, this question of how do we centralize questions of sexuality with um, the growth of the carceral state without displacing the importance of race, and in fact, seeing sexuality and race as co-constitutive, right, is something that um, not many people have done, right? And so I think that um, I, I would love to hear from you how, how you're kind of thinking about that. I'm, I'm reaching for this eagerly because um, <laughs> it's, it's very faint. Is this working? Can you guys hear me? Um, because, because one of the things that I seem to be having trouble messaging is that the, the so-called whiteness of the pedophile is very different from the sex offender. And one of the things that's most interesting about how the data works, and I'm in an English department, so I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to read the FBI databases and the accumulation of data that has happened under SORNA, is that there are three people who have done um, an analysis of how race functions in terms of registration, incarceration, rates of arrest and detention. The data is almost impossible to gather. There are no rates on Latinos other than, in, I believe, California. There are low rates of, um, I mean, rates of actually like using it in their statistical coverage. So the, what has been disclosed is that the rates of impact for the sex offender registries are disproportionately black and Latino and that the whiteness of the, of the profile is actually not represented in how it's been impacted. And one of the problems is the mobilization around the so-called low-hanging low fruit of the juvenile registered offender who's often presented as white and heterosexual and doing a Romeo and Juliet crime <laughs> or urinating in public or many of the things that have been picked up. Um, it's leaving out the way um, vagrancy, the way other kinds of regulation have happened to make it as usual. Um, a, ra a racializing project. And so sex offenders been picked up as if it's a racial formation organized through whiteness as its front, when in fact that actually is not, this is why I think their, their project is so good, the conjuncture actually is not operating that way, and yet the information serves as a strange sort of promise for endless data, but there is, it's almost impossible, and most of the analyses are colorblind about it, so it precip precipitates that non-non-non logic. But it actually is centrally organized in the same way. Ready to come up and ask questions? Bob? I have a response that's less of a question, which is something that I was thinking, especially David, while you were talking in a research project recently into the 
policies and procedures around body cameras for police, which are appropriate in terms of funding and also in terms of implementation. Sometimes those implementations have policies and sometimes they don't. Uh, but one of the themes in those policies was, uh, was, was it wasn't always in this language, but it was a right to privacy for police officers. Um, and so it was often under the heading of right to privacy, and then the sort of litany was like, well, in bathrooms there's an expectation of privacy, and in hospitals sometimes there's an expectation of privacy, especially around HIPAA protected um, information. And then, of course, it was almost always, of course, of course, there's also this expectation of privacy in police stations between and among officers, especially as they're interacting with their superior officers. So there was an explicit officers cannot record their superior officers talking about strategy. This expectation of the right to privacy, and I was thinking about it too in relationship to I don't remember which state, but the Blue Lives Matter law that just got passed recently, which is to say there was a law that said that Blue Lives Matter, police officer lives matter, and I'm imagining it escalated the sort of um, punitive responses to any kind of violence against police officers. Um, and I was thinking about that in relationship, David, to what you were talking about in terms of both the deputization of, and which is just the implicit deputization of, so the, the implicit acceptance of of um, non-police or police acting individuals, but also about this sort of, um, and we talk about this a lot in cultural studies, but this sort of co-opting of the language of, uh, of marginalized people trying to speak black. And so like, well, if black lives matter, then so do blue lives. And well, so if, um, if we all have a right to privacy, then we all have a right to privacy. And I'm gonna sort of cover over some of the actual differences in, in the rights to kill people, for example, that some of us do and do not have. And so I was just wondering if you'd seen any threads of these kinds of things that play in the work that Well, you know. Just yeah. hold it close. That, that doesn't sound okay. much better. Okay, this is fine. Um, the, the right to privacy is a very tricky right because it, it just, it's very situational. And, uh, you know, when you're um, performing your duty, you give up that right. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's kind of scary because I, I did an article about the number of people who are getting fired from posting things on Facebook. In other words, uh, you say something critical of your boss and you're a firefighter, you know, and, and this is one of the classic cases. You can be dismissed, you know, and it's not really, doesn't fall under slander or libel or any other kind of law. But the prerogatives, are, the, the, the line between private and public is incredibly squishy. Um, recently at, at Stanford, we've had sort of IT privacy um, uh, committee. And um, I said, well, you know, I have my private iPhone, I have a Gmail account, but if I'm using the Stanford network and my data goes over the Stanford network uh, and I'm technically using a Stanford resource and I'm writing something about BDS, am I then now liable to be um, um, disciplined for doing that? And when, I, when I met with the general counsel's office, they said, well, that's sort of marginal. So, you know, it's exactly these kinds of margins I think we, I don't want to use the word police, but we have to be attentive to because they're very um, manipulable. And so whether these police officers or others have rights to privacy under certain conditions is, is always going to fall back upon your power to litigate. In other words, it, it, it won't be a matter of a natural right or an absolute transparent right. It will be a matter of the threat of a lawsuit versus your capacity to withstand that. And that's why academics are in such a horrible position unless you're unionized, but that doesn't even guarantee you that much. So I think we have to be, 
one thing we can do is, is really, and it's learn the law and, and learn how porous the law is and then uh, share information. I think that's the other thing that's very important for our struggles is to share our experiences no matter how idiosyncratic we think they are or how um, unique to ourselves. You'd be surprised at how, how many cases that we think are only pertinent to ourselves are shared by many. One of the things that we, you know, identified in the theme prompt and that really you marked explicitly, but I think David actually you just did too in talking about learning the law, is questions about methodology, both in terms of the daily practice of our um, knowledge production, doing it collaboratively, doing it individually, but then also um, how we want to position things like data or uh, you know, the kind of interdisciplinary struggle to adequately learn how to make sense of a set of somebody else's knowledge production and mm -hmm. done in a mode we don't do routinely or weren't quote unquote trained in. Um, so I'm just wondering, I mean, in your own practices, you know, if, you, if you've thought about or struggled with, mm -hmm. you know, in producing these kinds of work that you presented here, how that works. I'll just take a first shot at it. You know, at the end of my statement, I talked about you know, cultural studies methodology and combining you know, um, our interpretive uh, strategies against empirical data. But that begs the question: What's empirical data? You know, what counts as a fact under certain kinds of regimes? And you know, my a lot of my work is in on, on human rights, and you know, the difficulty with human rights is that they often offset each other. In other words, you, you put into play competing and equally legitimate rights, and then you have to look at the field um, of power, right? And who can harness what kind of power? And a lot of what's coming out now is that um, human rights are, well, to be given impossible to enforce, there's no adjudicating body, but what you need to do is precisely deploy the methods of cultural studies in terms of looking at the different ways that information it appears. And it's, affective to different populations, and you build coalitions across that. Everything from social media to making use of specifically um, specifically uh, circulating journals to uh, street protests, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, that um, part of my response would be is to, to look at the various tools at our disposal, but also to use them critically to see what actually gains us purchase in very discrete actions, because no size will fit all. It will have to be a matter of very discrete actions on um, very discrete uh, problems. Um, so, so I'm going to steal a, um, a, a wonderful term that uh, actually Nick Mitchell used yesterday, <laughs> um, where I, you know, I think for me, I work on um, as Miranda noted, uh, policing in contemporary Puerto Rico, and uh, you know, as a graduate student, went, went to Puerto Rico to do my field work, and had like pie-eyed like dreams of being able to interview like everyone at every level of the kind of law enforcement on the island, and. Um, all of this kind of stuff, and um, I happened to arrive there um, in 2000, 
uh, 11 right after uh, the DOJ uh, uh, report about the Puerto Rican Police Department as one of the most kind of corrupt and violent uh, law enforcement uh, bodies under U.S. jurisdiction had uh, had just come out, and so no one wanted to talk to me. And so I had to engage in what Nick brilliantly called yesterday feral uh, methods, right? And I had a feral kind of uh, study where I had to just cobble together what I could kind of find. And I think, you know, um, I'm, I'm trained as an American Studies scholar, and so, you know, I'm very kind of comfortable with that approach as well. But I think um, this is also perhaps even linking back to something uh, about kind of what what can policing the crisis serve as a model for is really rigorous analysis of the way in which policing functions, its effects, and how it's felt without necessarily having to rely upon what the police says about itself, right? And I think, um, you know, Dean Spade makes this point um, amazingly in his work is, you know, we can't believe what the law says about itself, so how do we find out what we need to know about the law, right? And I think um, being creative about how we construct these narratives and what voices we listen to is something that I do think that, um, that police in the crisis teaches us almost 40 years later, but I think that many uh, of the scholars, such as um, Dean Spade and others, really um, uh, encourage us to, to really think creatively, right? So what does it mean? Um, in, in my case, I, um, I look at, to tell the story of policing in contemporary Puerto Rico from 1980 on, I look at everything from congressional reports to tweets, right? And, which, and, um, and, and underground rap from the 1990s, right? Um, in addition to interviewing people like civil rights attorneys, right, more kind of traditional sources for that kind of information. Um, so I think that, that in terms of methodology, that kind of um, uh, ability to think capaciously, right, is, is endemic when we're talking about policing, and this is something that um, Paul Chidigny and his work also, um, Edge of the Knife, uh, discusses um, the kind of notori notoriously um, closed nature of, of finding out about law enforcement, right? So you're really forced to think creatively about how to tell those stories um, and how not to fall into the trap of just repeating what the, the state and, and its law enforcement apparatus, uh, the story that it wants to tell about itself. Great. <laughs> I was laughing because um, you know, it's funny, I often try to really connect with the audience when I'm talking with them because I talk, and I've talked in law schools about this and I've talked in English departments about this and I usually try to find the common ground, speaking of that collaborative question, to try to figure out where people are entering. As soon as I knew there was a camera here, all I could think about is the various audiences that I actually collaborate with listening to what I'm saying and I became so self-conscious it was hard to go off script or connect in any way. So I think one of the things that's interesting working on surveillance is how much the collaboration then becomes very hard to figure out how to voice correctly with other people to make sure you're sharing that group work. Um, and so I was gonna say, I typically am very careful to say a lot of scholarship has been done on sex offenders, sex offense laws, um, predators, like really terrific scholarship. And Alyssa Ackerman is the person who I just cited who's been, like the amount of work it takes to scrape those databases to try to look at how the federal government, which is not involved in actually being responsible for any data gathering, but is the filter and distributor for mandated state gathering, which is connected to burn money for policing, but there's no enforcement of it. 
enforcement of it. I thought you were just give me a shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the problem is when so many people have done the labor of gathering the information, but that, that way of understanding it is not disseminated. And then I actually work on cultural materials. So I work on a body of films and a group of novels that quite interestingly are part of this policing and to me are more centrally important than this aggregation of information that actually isn't used as anything but the promise of some kind of profile that people can learn how to identify. So I look at informational aesthetics in films and the ways in which registries and certain kinds of movements and certain ways that organic matter are refigured to be part of a problem of this residual sexuality that is white in a biopolitical way. I didn't mean to just turn to like, no, it's about people of color, but it's actually about the biopolitics of whiteness. And so what's hard is sharing that work when you rely on so many people's scholarship and we're forced to present it as single author studies, unlike what they did, it's very hard to get that right. You know, so I like I rely on poli sci people to talk to me about the numbers. I do a lot of that kind of work, but then I end up presenting it as if it's my findings to explain where I got to. So um, I find it ethically very, very challenging. So this is a conference on policing crisis, and uh, that phrase has come up several times in the presentation. If it pleases the committee, I wonder if you would care to reflect for a few moments, perhaps in closing, since other people aren't asking questions, uh, about that uh, groundbreaking volume that came out four years ago and that caused us to uh, convene this felicitous convention uh, this weekend. Uh, specifically, I mentioned the organizer's reference to features of cultural studies practice such as collective research, conjunctural structural analysis, primary attention to race, gender, and sexuality in political and economic dynamics, as well as its innovative analysis of intertwined statistical representations, I'm almost done, media representations, legal proceedings, and of course, policing by police as a response to a crisis of the gender. <coughs> so useful in being able to crystallize and distill some things that I had, had felt and known and didn't have language for, and to be able to turn back to some of the communities that I'm a part of that didn't maybe know or understand or see the way that I saw, and say, like, no, this, this is what I've been saying this whole time, they just, they just made it clearer. I don't know that I understood the question, so, so, so. We, we handle the book. Yeah, huh? reflect on the text. I feel like my whole talk just <laughs> so I don't know if I have anything else to add. <laughs> uh, what, what's hard is I think it's very hard to answer these questions because I had all these notes on the book because it was I reread the whole thing and was like it's amazing. Oh, oh, I did that and um, you know I, it's too bad Paula Myers in here who was initially on this panel. We were just on a panel for this sexuality and area studies talk and he was talking about um, we we're talking about scale and one of the things that he was talking about thuggy and thugs and the ways in which the circulation of the term very much like mugging had a genealogy in colonial history and the way in which it was racialized and how racialization and colonial history kind of became a conjuncture that wasn't always being recirculated when people uh, talked about it. And for me, pedophile is a very deliberate return to a kind of Greek classical way of kind of claiming an origin of sexuality that is not modernized, so both libertarian as well as part of the regulation. And so it's been incredibly useful for me, thinking about Eng Bang Lim's work in um, the colonial man-boy dyad, and the ways in which the terms that secure policing 
import a set of economic and political conjunctures, I think they're a little, well, I mean, who's going who's gonna to critique them up from this stage? They have some things that, I, that probably would be done differently in a more robust international dialogue now. But, um, you know, but it's hard on stage to, to replicate that because of the thickness. And again, for me, verbally, with no, dat no data, but with no um, ability to actually recite more carefully the chapters in the books that I don't know about other people that take the longest to write and that feel like they're the thicker part where you, you spent all that time. But they're hard, they're not sound bites. Do you know what I mean? I think it's, they're not a keyword. Like to say pedophilia and do a keyword, it's not the same as doing a conjunctural analysis that has kind of a thick and collaborative model of engagement. I don't know what you were asking, but was it maybe that was. <laughs> in, my, in my own modest defense, uh, I was asking the, the, uh, the panel to reflect briefly on the contribution of Stuart Hall and others yep. in the volume and making this conference and yep. also dedication to Stuart Yeah, I, I mean, I would actually say that the, both the panel and the conference as a whole has implicitly and to some extent explicitly been doing, answering your question all the way along in um, demonstrating uh, you know, strategies such as explicitly the critique of crisis um, and the you know, kind of repositioning or of, of the term and idea crisis. I would say we may have reflected less, and maybe that's because um, on the term policing than we did on crisis. Um, and I would be curious if anybody would want to sort of take, is there a reason to or reason not to take that term apart in the same way that we've kind of put a, put a hesitation into just naming something a crisis? Um, do we have the same, uh, are we still comfortable just saying policing and thinking we all know what we mean and saying it earnestly? No, I, I was just going to give you the mic. It's on you. It's on you. I, I mean, I think that the panels, that, at least that I attended um, throughout the conference, definitely, I think, took up that keyword of policing and, and very much tried to think about policing in a capacious form, right? And I think that, going back to your question um, about the actual text itself, right, is how the authors treat policing, right? They treat policing capaciously. And, and I think that is one of the, um, you know, in, in my remarks, one of the things I said is I think that, it, that that book fundamentally shifted the way we think about policing, um, perhaps in ways that 40 years, almost 40 years later that we take for granted um, right now, right? And I think it's very easy for us to think about um, policing capaciously, right? To know that policing is not just about the police and the citizens, right, or the, or the non-citizens or whatever, right? Yeah, the, the police and the, the, the police, right? It, that we know that that relationship it, um, involves a, a wide array of very complex power dynamics of forms of um, cultural, um, cultural repression, of economic coercion, of, of various, um, other rubrics, right, or, or, or things that we would think of under other rubrics that also constitute forms of policing, right? And so I, I've gone to a, a number of fantastic uh, panels that, that discuss that throughout, throughout the course of the weekend, and I think that that kind of 
um, analytic and, and legacy of the tax is, is alive and well, right? I, I don't see any need for a crisis or moral panic about it. <laughs> so. No, Just briefly to contribute to what Marisol was saying, um, I also I still think it's a really useful question, and not least because I've been having some conversations here at the conference around, um, and the sort of shorthand, I mean, so A, around um, the, the utility of investigating words that function as a gloss, especially among people for whom, I mean, a lot of us are trained to speak a particular language, and I find it incredibly satisfying to be able to have to explain myself with some of my terminology, but, um, there's an extent to which some of those glosses are are doing work that we're not aware of. And so um, in, in one conversation earlier, I sort of half-jokingly asked, you know, is policing, gonna, is it functioning the same way that queering functioned for a while? Like, we're going to queer it. And then it's queering the everything, and that's how we're going to, and we didn't really unpack like, how that sort of, um, at the very least, collapsing a bunch of stuff into one thing, some of which would benefit from being teased out. And so I think, well, I... I 100% agree about the capacious quality of policing and the benefit that we have garnered. I also think, I mean, I think especially about the sort of the concept of policing language, especially in activist spaces, where like, yes, there is an extent to which we are policing language, and I have less power than a police officer does, even if in that moment I do have power in part because of the sort of um, lowercase p politics of what's happening there. So I still think it's a really useful, interesting question, and it sounds like you may have something to say to me. Not about that, but <laughs> um, I think this is mostly for Marisol, but I was really um, interested in the comment that you made towards the end that using debt as a framework might include a number of um, historical and political um, uh, forms of power that we should be thinking about otherwise. And it seems like in your, your comments you were mostly thinking about the problem of using debt and the way that debt is used by kind of media analysis or the way that circulates kind of more generally but also legislation. But I was curious if you also see there being a problem around um, using debt as the kind of icon or a signifier or whatever for social movements. And if you also think that there are serious limitations along the lines of kind of colonialism Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic question. I'm so glad you asked that because that was something I unfortunately didn't get to um, include in my remarks and um, you know, one of the things that has been really incredible to see about the, the activism that's ha happening on the island currently around the, the so-called debt crisis is, well, it, it's, it's dividing people among how, uh, about how to respond to it, but one of the really incredible things has been also um, an activist rejection to even accept the debt as a category regarding this problem, right? And so um, a lot of a lot of kind of folks are saying debt is not the problem, right? The debt is illegal, first of all, right? And so we, why are we even concerning ourselves with this as, as the as the problem, right? And so it's been this really interesting resurgence, actually, of. Um, questions about Puerto Rico's status in relationships to the United States, right, and, and a willingness to categorize it as colonial, right, um, not only as a result of how the debt accrued, right, but how the debt is currently being handled, right, and um, I think that folks are doing really interesting responses They are not the kind of, um, you know, I like, I like Lynn manuel Miranda, 
the producer of Hamilton, but he like just did this like op-ed that was like totally uh, like deplorable, right? That was like making lemon, making lemons into lemonade. This promesa um, bill is the best that we're gonna get, so we need to take it, right? Because if not, the island is gonna keep plunging further and further. And I think that um, activists have been like, let it, like let it because the debt is, is immoral, the debt is illegal, and we're not gonna negotiate on the debts, uh, on the ground of the debt, right? But we're willing to negotiate on um, questions of what is the relationship that we have, right? And, 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 and like, what are the ways in which we need to transform that, right? And so I think that um, folks have been organizing, re rejecting that as, a, as the sole analytic in which to have this conversation, right? But I think there's definitely um, a division because folks are scared because the situation's dire, right? And the debt is serious, right? Or the effects of that debt are serious on, on the population. Great, so I'll start with um, a quick comment um, in response to thinking about debt and, and also in response to your question. And so I was thinking about um, Cydia Hartman's work, right? So this objection where she talks about the way that debt was used, um, both in colonial society and um, post-antebellum in the United States, so thinking about how that rhetoric's working in narratives of colonialism and also imperialism. And then also thinking about um, Ben Moten and Stefan Hani's work, the undercommons, right? So where they're critiquing um, this idea of debt and the way that debt has been um, instrumentalized. And they also speak about the university, um, right? So last, the CSA conference last year was about the university. And so thinking about the way that um, debt functions as a form of power and hegemony. And so thinking about what Moten and Hardy propose about um, indebtedness, and so thinking about how indebtedness rather than debt might be um, a way to think about a model um, where debt becomes useful um, as maybe part of community organizing or a way as a form of resistance um, to the model of debt where basically you owe someone first indebtedness, which is more about um, community and responsibility. I don't know how that might function. I'm thinking particularly about Marisol's work, but other people as well. Two other folks do it. Um, I don't know what you think. <laughs> um, I feel like I need a minute to. Do you, do, do you want to jump in? Person? I feel like I need a minute to mull over that, that question. It's an excellent question. Um, I did a special issue of occasion on debt and. There's a great essay in it entitled, Where Are You When You're in Debt? Uh, and I think that the, the, the notion is it's so much tied in with the idea of morality. And you know, you forgive a debt, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the points I made in, in the volume is that the whole you know, push toward austerity is pushing the guilt on individuals for asking for their rights, their, their rightfully entitled benefits from the state because of the, pri the, the way the private debt became public. Um, so I think that it's important to try to locate, as per the title of the, the essay, you know, what do we mean by debt in terms of this rippling effect into the idea of value and human value and the capacity for humans to act in certain ways? Um, I'm still processing your question about, about um, cultural studies, so I'm kind of, kind of 
like that a little bit, um, which is that way back in the 60s, uh, in 68, there was this um, phrase that circulated something along the line, my French is horrible, nous sommes tous les flics, we're all cops. And you know, it was very powerful in the sense that they're used, to, and this is also sort of a deflection of the idea of political correctness, but you know, we're all interpolated into power, and Judith Butler has this interesting book called The Psychic Life of Power, where she tries to get into this, this notion that we, we emerge into the world saturated and located by power. And that's very seductive and it's very exhilarating, but it also at a certain point, you know, you say, well, so what? In other words, I think cultural studies helps us understand the indexes and markers of power and, and how we partake of it or are uh, removed from it in different ways. And so when I look back on that volume, I think about how rich it was in terms of um, getting us to think of the different sort of pockets of entitlement and disenfranchisement um, on, in, 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 and this is what I meant by data points, in, in things that did used to register in our understandings of how life worked at all, and to see how saturated we are, how the landscape is so saturated with these ideas of power and also disempowerment. So that's something I think the volume helped us understand was that we were so used to thinking of the usual suspects and the usual victims and the usual modes of scaling. That's the other thing that I think is very important. The way that we assign scale and hence value and we understood that no, just because something seemed like a, a microcosm, it didn't mean that it didn't attach to all sorts of other nodal points in a kind of rhizomic way. So thank you for your question. This took me a while to process that. I suppose I really can't let a question about debt go by without saying something <laughs> myself. Um, and I think actually your comment was really beautiful in that you focused on you didn't say it in these words, but you made it clear that the issue is the attribution of debt, right? It's not the debt in itself, it's the attribution of debt as a, as a um, way of establishing relations of power. I mean, that's you know, clearly what Hartman is, is um, arguing, and, and I think it's also really what Marisol argued at the end, right? Debt is not the issue, it's a symptom the attribution of debt is a symptom of a long history of a power relation. And so then what kind of response, response of refusal, a response of a strategic alternative accounting that attributes credits and debts elsewhere. I mean, we also know that debt in itself is not necessarily a problem. The most powerful people and entities on the planet are the ones that have access to and make use of the most credit and thus in some way could be said to be the most indebted, but clearly are not um, you know, oppressed by that in the way that people who are you know, attributed financial debt, as in Puerto Rico's case, or criminal debt that they, that they owe to society something, right, and then spend time in prison. So I think moving off of debt as the problem in itself and looking at it as a symptom of the of power relations that are established through different kinds of mechanisms and sometimes it's financial accounting and sometimes it's the um, it, it's criminal accounting and sometimes it's it's power it's narratives 
So the, the kind of linkage between, you know, for cultural studies, thinking about the ways that, you know, quantitative accounts and narrative accounts and images in media are working in relation to each other to create these credit, you know, credit debt relations. Um, maybe something that we can uh, think about, you know, methodologically um, going forward. And it's past 5.30, and so I think I probably, does anybody want to have the last word? <laughs> and I'll make that mine. Thank you all very much.